I want us to pray together, then we'll open up our Bibles. Father in heaven, today we're going to look at, at a bunch of wisdom. It comes right from Solomon, and I believe he received it from you. But it also appears to be hard-fought wisdom. So Lord, I pray that we will learn from him so that we don't have to fight the same battles. This is a great book of the Bible. I'm glad you put it in there for us. Now, would you help us learn from it? In Jesus' name, amen. I wish you'd watch this little tiny clip from the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. In case the neighbors had any doubts about our heritage, they could just check out our subtle tribute to the Greek flag. My dad believed in only two things, that Greeks should educate non-Greeks about being Greek, and that any ailment, from psoriasis to poison ivy, could be cured with Windex. <laughs> Nothing like treating a bad case of tendonitis with some Windex. Heal you up every time. My grandmother, Helen Burns, had a philosophy kind of like that. It wasn't Windex that she believed in. It was another magic elixir called ST37. Anybody ever hear of that? Two or three of you. That's more than we had in first service. ST37 came on the market, I guess, in the late 60s, and my grandmother grabbed hold of that, and she thought, this will cure anything that comes along. If we were over at her house, had a, a bad case of strep throat, she'd want us to drink a little shot of ST37. She believed that'd heal you up. If you were outside playing, cut your finger, and you came inside crying about it, first thing grandma would do is get the ST37. Pour that stuff right over the top of it. It was horrible. Tasted horrible, stung something fierce, but grandma believed in it. I believe that she probably would have told you that if you were diagnosed with cancer, if you were to cover your body in ST37, it'd heal you right up. That's how strongly she believed in this. But some of the worst times for grandma to break that stuff out came after we'd been playing out in her backyard. The mosquitoes might be real bad, and if you've ever been in the Midwest, you'll understand this, the chiggers could be real bad. We'd lay down in the grass and get to playing around and those ferocious little bugs would get under your skin and you would start itching. They're just horrible. So we'd go to scratching on the mosquito bites and the chigger bites and when we'd get inside, grandma would break out the ST37 and she'd start pouring it on there. It did absolutely no good. You would have this horrible itch and grandma would just keep pouring it and she'd say, oh, it's going to get better. It's gonna... It never got better. It was horrible stuff. But Grandma believed in it. She really did. My mother had an interesting philosophy about mosquito bites and chigger bites as well. When we were scratching away on them, she'd say, Now, you better not scratch those because if you break the skin and it starts bleeding, then it's going to turn into a scar and you don't want to be covered in scars. I think that was a mother myth that she just put out there to keep us from scratching. But we kept it in mind all the time. We'd scratch right to the point of breaking the skin and the blood, and then we'd stop because of what Mom had always told us. So the ST37 didn't work. The scratching didn't work. We were just kind of left to deal with this. You ever had a really bad itch that you couldn't get rid of? A lot of you have. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We have a guy that works in our office here. I don't want to embarrass him by giving any names, but I'll tell you it's not Matt Warner or Gene Ogie. That every once in a while, he gets a, a really bad itch on his back, and he'll come into my office, stand right in the, the door frame, and he'll go to work just scratching his back on the edge of the door. He looks like a dog with his hind leg behind his ear. He's just scratching away. And you can see it on his face as he's trying to get rid of that itch. And if it does go away, this sense of peace and calm comes over him. But if he can't get rid of it, he'll swing the door closed and get up against the, the edge of the bookshelf and just keep doing that same thing, working on that itch. 
Every once in a while, in a, a moment of benevolence, I think to myself, I should tell him that his wife is right across the hall and she could probably help him with that because I'm not going to. There is, there's no way. There are certain things that even good friends will not do for one another and I'm not scratching the man's back. That's where I, I draw the line. Personal space issues aside, that's just wrong. And so I think to myself, he ought to go in there and see if his wife could do something about this, but then I choose not to tell him because it's just too entertaining to watch him dig away on this thing and, and see if he can get rid of it. A lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had a persistent itch that you couldn't get rid of. You might even understand the words of this one grandmother to her grandson. No one ever got rid of an itch by getting really good at scratching. We usually don't. You never get rid of an itch by getting really good at scratching. Now, people have wrestled with the physical itch. They have wrestled with that a a number of different times, but there are deeper types of itches. There's the emotional itch that people try to scratch. There are spiritual itches that people try to scratch. And it's the same thing. You never get rid of them by getting really good at scratching. There are solutions, but that's not it. I want to show you a guy in the Bible that had a a nasty, persistent itch. His could be defined as the itch of want, the itch of always looking for more. His name is Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. He was the wisest man to ever live. He was David's son, and he still had problems. He still had struggles. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to read for you 11 verses of Scripture. Hopefully you brought your Bibles and you'll open up there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as we read these, I want you to picture a man that as you sit across from him, looking right into his eyes, you see his face covered with scars. As you look at his arms and his hands, they're covered with scars. As you look even at the parts of his legs that are visible, you see the same thing. Scars. Healed scars, but scars nonetheless. And I want you to imagine that curiosity takes hold of you to the point that you actually say to him, hey, where where did you get all these scars? And in a moment of honesty, he tells you that I've been trying to scratch a lot of itches for a long time. And I scratch to the point of blood. And these scars are a reminder of where I've been. What you're about to hear are the words of a scarred man. Verse 1. I thought in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained 
under the sun. Now, can you see the scars? He had a whole bunch of itches that were tied to his desires and his wants, his pursuit of more. That might be a great way of describing or defining the itch that he wrestled with. It was the continual pursuit of more. And he scratched that itch as often as he could. He scratched that itch, but it did absolutely no good. He would say that it was meaningless, nothing more than a chasing after the wind. Now, there are at least three ways that he talks about scratching that itch in these 11 verses. He talks about doing it through enjoyment. He talks about doing it through employment. And then he talks about trying to scratch that itch through relationships. Not one of those three things ever helped him. Let's take a look at each one. We'll start with the idea of enjoyment. Listen again to the first four verses. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now Solomon understood very well the old Hebrew teaching that God had created everything for our pleasure. Everything around us is for our pleasure. Now there are guidelines for every part of that. But God has said, here is all of creation. I want you to enjoy it. Solomon knew that. Even in the New Testament, we discover that teaching. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. You don't have to turn with me, just listen to these words. The Apostle Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now there's the teaching all the way in the New Testament. The Hebrew people understood it. New Testament Christianity taught it. Solomon would actually believe it so much that he would follow it up in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes with this type of teaching. If you're in chapter 2, just turn over 10 chapters, chapter 12, verse 1, and listen to what he says. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Now that's Solomon attaching himself to that Hebrew teaching. Everything's out there for your enjoyment. Now go do it. So he says, I determined, chapter 2, that laughter is meaningless. I chased it all, and it was nothing but folly. In today's world, we might say it like this. Solomon decided that he was going to party, and he was going to do it on a regular basis. He was going to enjoy everything that that lifestyle involved. He was going to invest himself in it. But when he looked back upon it, it was absolutely nothing but folly, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, in order to understand how much he invested in this, you have to take a look at one of the parties that he threw or what a normal party would look like. We're going to go to the book of 1 Kings for that. Chapter 4, verse 20. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Now this is the part you've got to hear. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tifsa to Gaza, 
and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. Now that was a daily party for Solomon. He invited enough people to his house on a daily basis that that's what it required to feed them. That's pretty impressive. It really is. But it doesn't stop there. Because you're coming to the king's house and he's throwing this party for all of these different people, it wasn't like he could just take a CD, put it in the the player and push play so they could listen to the best music. Solomon would have had the best musicians from all of the land there to entertain the people. Comedians would have been there to entertain the people. All kinds of different entertainment would have brought in been brought in to entertain the people. That was a party at Solomon's house. And he would say, it was meaningless. It doesn't satisfy. It's a lot like addictions. Once you've experienced just a little bit of it, it's going to take more to satisfy. Once you've had more, it's going to take more to satisfy. You talk to anybody that has wrestled with a chemical addiction that they got while they were out partying, and they'll tell you that very thing. You get to a point where there is no satisfaction in it. That's where Solomon was. There was no satisfaction in what he was doing and these things that he sought after for fun. I was talking with a lady this past week that was telling me about her wrestling match with shopping. Her struggle isn't with chemical addictions. Her struggle is with stuff. So she gets on the internet and she starts ordering things or she's watching TV and and she starts ordering things and she would describe it this way, there's a high every time she clicks buy or every time she calls on the phone and and they send things to her. There's a, a literal high that's attached to that, but it doesn't last very long at all. In fact, more often than not, she sends everything back because it doesn't satisfy. And Solomon wants us to understand that, that partying. Those things that the world would say are there for our enjoyment and our pleasure don't satisfy. They don't stay with you. They're meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So when Solomon realized that, he decided to move on. He went from the realm of enjoyment into employment, into projects. Listen to this, verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me in all this My wisdom stayed with me. So now when he determines that I can't find happiness and satisfaction through all these things that the world would call pleasureful, he started looking towards accomplishment. And Solomon accomplished things. He built houses. He built cities. He built towns. He built villages. He planted all kinds of different things. He planted groves of fruit trees. He planted crops to take care of his herds and his people. He planted forests. He developed water systems to take care of all of it. All of these were the project-oriented things that Solomon would do, and he reaped great benefit from it. But it left him hollow and empty. 
Listen to what the Bible says about some of the things that he invested himself in. This is 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That's 25 tons. Not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 beakers of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. At once, every three years, it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. I don't really understand that part. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from there. Now those are all the projects that he invested himself in. It got down to the point where Solomon was actually designing the furniture that would go into the palace and into the temple. I'm going to put lions on the side and I'll put jewels here and so on. If Pinterest had been around in those days... Solomon would have been putting all kinds of different things on there saying, hey, try this, and people would have loved it. Solomon was so involved in the project-oriented aspects of life that he thought that would actually provide some sort of meaning for him, but it didn't. His work didn't provide any type of meaning for him. He maybe experienced what one fellow would say about the idea of working towards happiness. He would say that success holds a lot of promise until man receives it. And then it's just last year's nest from which the birds have already flown. Talk to a workaholic and they'll tell you that that's exactly what happens. You chase one project, you, you get it, you achieve it. There's always another project waiting. There's always something else to be done. It's just last year's nest from which the birds have already flown. And Solomon said, it, it did nothing for me. It didn't help at all. It was meaningless. And I felt hollow afterwards. I felt empty. So he turned to relationships. Listen to this again. This is in Ezekiel chapter 2. I amassed, verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I want you to make no mistake about this. When Solomon says that he amassed all the delights of the heart of a man, What he's talking about is sex. Solomon went looking for satisfaction in that realm, and he didn't find it. Now, it's interesting when you begin to explore how he did that. If you go back to the book of 1 Kings, you can actually see it. You don't have to turn with me. I'll just read this for you. This is chapter 11. 
King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And listen to this part, I like this. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, by the way, there's a lot of husbands that have led their wives astray too. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. These relationships began to destroy even his walk with God. Now you might think to yourself, 700 wives, 300 concubines, how in the world did he find that many women? How did Solomon pull this off? Well, in today's day and age, maybe he would have said after he had found a few hundred that I'm going to have to get into a deeper pool and he would have turned to the internet. And what we have discovered about Solomon is at heart, he was a farm boy. He liked to plant the crops. He liked to plant the vineyards. He liked to plant the orchards. He liked to water them. He liked to do all that stuff. So maybe he would have gone to a website just like this. Interested in dating but tired of websites that are just too generic? Have specific needs but get frustrated after searching thousands of online profiles? Introducing ChristianFarmersOnly.com, the web's only dating resource built exclusively for Christian farmers. You want a guy that'll get his hands dirty but still knows your love language? Looking for a guy who can harvest the fruit of a tree and the fruit of the Spirit? Well, now there's a website for people who love Blake Shelton and Dave Barnes. I kissed dating goodbye, but I said hello to life on the farm. How much rainfall we're going to get every year? To me, that's every man's battle. And I'm looking for a very specific type of girl. Like the kind of girl that wouldn't mind taking communion from a red Solo cup. You know, like the kind of girl that will read the Farmer's Almanac and Redeeming Love. Basically, I'm looking for a Proverbs 31 girl with a badonkadonk. What better way to find God's match for you than while plowing God's green earth? Looking for the type of guy that can ride a horse and run a wild at heart Bible study? Need a man that looks good in a pair of boots and a pair of toms? ChristianFarmersOnly.com. We drink our milk from cows and our sweet tea from Chick-fil-A. Do you want a guy with a good farmer's tan but still wears a purity ring? Make those Karen Kingsbury novels come true with ChristianFarmersOnly.com. ChristianFarmersOnly.com. The harvest is plentiful. I just want a girl that's going to grow crops with me but won't let our kids read Harry Potter. The Farmer's Tan. Love the Farmer's Tan. So maybe if Solomon was alive today, that's exactly where he would have went looking to satisfy all these pleasures of his heart. He still would have found himself hollow and empty. Because you see, relationships don't make people happy either. There's some temporary joy in them, but if you're looking for true happiness, it isn't going to be found with somebody else. True happiness, true joy is all about a relationship that we have with God, not about other people. And that's the problem that most folks run into as they chase all these things, just like Solomon did. We're looking for pleasures in the realm of enjoyment. We're looking for satisfaction in work. We're looking for happiness, even in the realm of relationships. And just like Solomon, when it's all said and done and you look back upon it, all you can say is, that was meaningless. 
It's a chasing after the wind. Unless those things, all three of them, get covered by the grace of God. And then they become a part of the satisfaction that we are chasing. They become a part of the happiness that people long for. And a number of folks will actually say, okay, if all of that is just a chasing after the wind, if all of that is meaningless, then how am I supposed to pull it off? I really want to know, how am I supposed to pull it off? Well, when we get to the New Testament, we find some answers. Solomon will give us his own, but by the time we get to the New Testament, it becomes very clear for us. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. The Apostle Paul has just received some gifts from the churches that he planted. Now, when he was a, a Pharisee, a rabbi, a teacher of the law, he lived very, very well. He would have lived very, very well during that time, and culturally, they would have supported him. When he became a Christian and he started preaching the gospel, he lost all of that. So Paul had to rely on the trades that he had learned as a child, tent making. When he would go out into all these different communities, that's exactly what he would do. He would make tents and he would preach. He would make tents to be able to buy the food that he needed, but he would preach to get the churches going. And he never asked the churches for anything. Paul took up collections everywhere that he went for the other churches. He wanted to support them. And now all of a sudden the churches have turned the tables on him. They've sent money to him. Listen to his response. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Paul begins to teach an idea called biblical contentment, learning how to be content with whatever we have. It is quite a struggle. And by the way, he would say that he learned it. It wasn't just a gift that came to rest on him. He learned it. He figured it out. And I'll show you exactly what that secret is in a few minutes. Now, as you start looking at this, you have to, to ask yourself questions like this. How do I move from the realm of being unsettled and unsatisfied into this idea of biblical contentment? Well, it all depends on how you approach life. Our family really enjoys playing the game of life. We break out the board game, we'll put it on the kitchen table, everybody gets their car out. If you've ever played this, you know how it works. Set it at the starting spot and you spin the dial and it tells you how far you can move and, and you move your car that far and there's places where you have to make choices, so you do. You make choices about whether to go to college or whether to follow the work path and everybody makes their own choices and then you go on through it, continuing to spin the dial and it moves you forward. We really enjoy playing the game of life. There are a lot of people that believe that that's exactly what they're doing. They're involved in a game called life. But the truth is, the majority of people are playing a game of life without the L and the E involved. They're playing a game of if. The game of if sounds like this. If I got a promotion at work, then I would be really happy. If I got a different job, then I would be satisfied. If I had more money, then I would have everything that I needed. If my husband would act a little bit differently, then I could truly be happy in this relationship. If my wife said things to me different than she does, then I could really be happy. Some people take it far enough to say, if I got a new husband or wife, then everything would be okay. In the game of if, if my children acted differently, then everything would be fine in my world. And we can continue on and on and on to the point that some people actually say this, if I got a new nose, then everything would be great. 
I'll just make a few changes here and there. That's the game of if. That is not the game of life. In the game of if, everything is set based on how other people act or react, based on what other people have and what you don't have. The game of if is all about wanting more and chasing more. The game of life is about learning how to live it with the things that God has given us. And biblical contentment leads to that. Paul said, I've learned how to be content. It's a secret. I've learned how to be content in everything, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in need or in plenty. I have learned how to be content. And so for many of us, we'd say, okay, then Paul, you tell us what's the secret. How do we do it? Here it is, right here. It's tucked away in the passage we just read. Verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, that's the secret. It becomes about God, not about us. When we discover that, this horrible disease that is ravaging our country called meitis disappears because now all of a sudden I am living for God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. My life can begin to glorify God. It doesn't have to be about me. That's the secret of contentment. And when that secret takes hold, when the roots begin to grow, we begin to say things like this. It's a change from the the game of if into the real game of life. I don't need that new television. What I need to do is support other people that are in want. I don't need a new wife. I need to love the one that I have the way the Bible tells me to. I don't need a new husband. I need to learn how to love him the way the Bible tells me to to do it. I don't need my children to be different. I need to be different with them. See how this works? I don't need a new job. I need to use the one that I have to glorify the Lord. I don't have to have a new title. I simply have to live with the title I have, which is Christian. I'm going to use whatever it is that I have and wherever I'm at as a means of glorifying God because God has me here for a reason. God has me in this situation for a reason. And this is where I need to use my, or allow myself to be used for His glory. And that happens through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul said, I've learned this. I figured it out. You study his life in the book of Acts and you'll see him learn it. You start in, in Acts chapter 9 where Paul first shows up on the scene, or actually Acts chapter 7, he first shows up. But Acts 9, it gets really intense. And you go all the way through the rest of the book and you'll watch him learn it. It will happen right before your eyes. You'll see him move from the realm of playing the game of if into playing the game of life. You will see me-itis die in his life as he learns how to glorify God with every part of who he is. That's what happened in his life. And you can see it in the lives of believers all the time. That's how it works. But still, people say, I want to learn it. How do I do that? That's a really good question. There's two things that can help. The first one is this. Learn how to count your blessings rather than counting your desires. Turn all that around so that rather than saying, this is what I want, and if I just had this, then everything would be okay, you learn how to say, this is what I have, and look at what God's doing with it. It changes everything within us. It's a perspective changer, but more than that, it's a game changer when we learn how to count our blessings rather than our desires, because there we find satisfaction. I love the way God actually preaches my sermons, or His sermons, as I'm writing them, Throughout the course of a week, he does it all the time. God preaches the sermon to me, and I have to say, okay, Lord, I'm listening. Happened just this last week. Things hadn't gone exactly the way I expected them to all week long. I had a plan, 
plan didn't unfold the way I wanted it to unfold. Different things happened within the midst of it, and, and by Friday afternoon, I was just kicking the ground a little bit, thinking, oh my heavens, I had a whole different way of looking at this week, and, and nothing happened the way I wanted it to. I hadn't said anything to anybody at all, but as I'm just kicking the ground and pushing the dirt around, feeling bad about myself, things were kind of quiet in our home, which is very unusual. Things were kind of quiet in our home, and Tina, just without knowing anything that was happening in my life, made this statement to me. She said, God really blessed you this week. And I had to stop and think because everything going through my mind was, this didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And she says, God really blessed you this week. And instantly I started thinking through that. And yes, he did. Yes, he did. It wasn't the way I thought he was going to, but God really blessed me throughout the course of the week. And it changed everything, turned everything upside down. Now, I don't know, maybe something had come out of my mouth because I have a lot of words that have to come out every day. So maybe it had come out and she had heard what I was saying, but I think God was just speaking to her and, and she knew or he knew that I needed to hear words like that. It changed everything. Folks, learn how to count your blessings. And in those moments where you don't know what's going on, you just know that there's an unsettled aspect of your life and you're trying to get your arms around it, maybe you need to learn how to pray differently. I'll show you what I mean. A fellow named W.E. Sangster went through this very thing. He was a godly man, loved the Lord, but he came to a place where he was so unsettled in his life that he couldn't figure out what to do next. And so he just started writing some things down. This is from his journal. He writes, I believe that God has been knocking loudly on the door of my heart of late. I believe it for these reasons. I have lost peace. Thoughts of great unrest and personal uncertainty have invaded my heart. I have lost joy. Great depressions sweep over me and life seems a burden. I have lost taste for work. I've had to lash myself to it instead of growing or going willingly and gladly. Despite encouragements of one sort and another, I feel a failure. You can see the, the bumps on his arms and his face and there's the scratching and he doesn't know what to do about it. He would go on to say in his journal that he began to pray through each one of those different things. Realizing how unsettled he was, realizing how he had lost the idea of biblical contentment. He just put it down on paper, and then he began to pray through each aspect. And purpose came back into his life. Meaning came back into his life because he began to pray each one of those things. In those moments where you are scratching and it doesn't seem like anything is helping, it's all meaningless, a chasing after the wind, maybe you need to pray differently. Lord, show me a way out of this. Help me understand why I'm feeling the way I am. Help me understand why I'm so unsettled, even though I know you. And you trust his response. And then you begin to act upon it. Because when God responds, it will be a godly response. And he'll take you where he wants you to go. That you might live there contentedly, glorifying him with your life, your words, your actions, your enjoyments, your employments, your relationships. It works that way. You start by counting your blessings and then learn to pray differently and wait for God's response. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father, let me say again, thank you for the words of Solomon. We all need to hear them because every one of us, it doesn't matter who, every one of us has been guilty of chasing pleasures in other ways and those things have led us away from you. So Father, as we repent of that, as we turn away from it. I pray that you'll lead us into the great satisfactions of knowing you. I pray, Father, that you'll lead us deep into the wonders 
that you will make available for all of your children. And I pray, Lord, that you'll lead us into purpose. That you'll get us away from the meaningless of, meaninglessness of life and the chasing after the wind that we might actually be able to look back and say, this is what God is doing and I get to be a part of it. Father, help us discover Paul's secret and live it. In Jesus' name, amen.